We're told that Grand Canyon is a testimony to millions of years of Earth history. However, when we look at the rocks in the canyon itself, what it speaks to is a huge global catastrophe, Noah's Flood. The Bible's history is supported by scientific observations, and we'll tell you about it on today's podcast. Welcome to Creation Magazine Live. I'm Richard Fangrad. And I'm Calvin Smith. And today we're going to be talking about Grand Canyon and really how that relates uh, to evidence for Noah's flood. Now, um, one of the first, well, the first man that ever uh, led an expo uh, expedition down uh, Grand Canyon was named John Wesley Powell. And uh, yes. he was born March 24th, uh, 1834. And he was a U.S. soldier, geologist, explorer uh, of the American West, professor at Illinois State University, and director of major uh, scientific and cultural institutions. And he's best known as leading the first expedition through the Grand Canyon. And so uh, I guess the, the question is, what did he see? How did he describe that? And, oh, he and, was amazed by it. Yeah, he was amazed. And, and what have we learned since? He said, the wonders of the Grand Canyon cannot be adequately represented in the symbols of speech, nor by speech itself. The resources of the graphic art are taxed beyond their powers in attempting to portray uh, its features, language, and illustration combined must fail. Well, he was obviously blown away he by was what blown he away by the canyon as many people are today yeah. uh, i had the opportunity to go rafting uh, through the canyon years ago with yeah. uh, in the mid 90s with dr steve austin um from icr but the the canyon is a a wonderland for the photographer if you're into photography it, it's it's the place to go yeah. uh so, some facts about the canyon the canyon is 277 miles long that's it's typically measured by river miles so it, it snakes back and forth a bit that, that's river miles right uh, about 440 kilometers, uh, uh, 440 kilometers long by the river miles, 18 miles wide at its at its widest point, and more than a mile deep, nearly two kilometers deep. Uh, every year, about four million tourists visit the canyon. It's a big big tourist attraction, right? And here you can see some pictures of tourists, and there are hiking trails throughout the canyon. You can go hiking there. And uh, again, the tour I went with was headed by Dr. Steve Austin, who was at the time with the Institute for Creation Research. They did a fantastic job right. of, uh, of leading this tour. And so we're going to explore the canyon and, uh, and relive some of those uh, rafting events from my tour. Well, so. I, I guess, you know, after people see the canyon, I mean, what comes to mind immediately is, well, how did it get here? Right. right? But yeah. it's, it's not just how did all those layers get here. But then what did the excavation, how did the canyon itself get there, right? First you got the layers, but then what carved it all out, uh, et cetera. So I, I think a really interesting question would be to ask, why did the canyon form there? Why didn't it form in different places? So here we've got a satellite image of the Grand Canyon area. And this is Lee's Ferry. I guess there was a guy named Lee <laughs> who'd ferry people across the river at this point, yes. hence the name. And uh, this is where rafting groups typically uh, begin today. And you can see the rivers marked in blue. The dark green area in the center of the picture is a forest of mostly ponderosa pines. And the standard uh, explanation for the formation of the canyon is that the Colorado River did it over millions and millions of years. I mean, if you talk to the park rangers and interpretive plaques, they're going to give you the same story, right? The, the layers got laid down over millions of years of Earth history, and then the Colorado River carved out those layers slowly, etc. And that's how... Uh, 
we got there, but there's some problems with that, right? Th there is, yeah. Uh, you can see here, it's kind of in the middle of the picture, the East Kaibab monocline. A monocline is an incline in one direction. On one side of the monocline, it's 9,000 feet above sea level. On the other side, it's 6,000 feet above sea level. Right. Now, as the river approaches this area and flows along the, uh, the unwarp, as would be expected, um, but then it turns and goes through the unwarped area. Through the, through, through the upwarp there. Upwarped area. Sorry. Yes, yeah. It travels, <laughs> and that's, I mean, that's, that's the first question. Why is the canyon there? Right. I mean, so it went from where it was 6,000 feet above sea level to where it was 9,000 feet above sea level. What, how would the canyon form like that? You would expect the river, if the canyon was going to form, that, would, that it would form along that upwarped area, not, not going through it. Right. Uh, hence the question. And, and you can see an aerial photo here. That's the East Kaibab monocline. It's, a, right. again, an incline in one direction. There's 3,000 feet of, of upwarp. And you can see the canyon in the foreground there. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's just, why is the canyon formed there? It's a, it's a puzzle for evolutionists. And of course, they have explanations. Right. So... Um I guess we're going to really take a look at this here in detail and try to try to see if what the Bible says uh, about Earth history can explain this better than what the the evolutionists are. That's exactly it. Now, the the uh, as far back as the '60s, the geologists who study the canyon have basically scrapped the idea that the river carved the canyon. Hmm. Yeah, and here you right. see Science News, September 30th, 2000, erosion vast and fast. Hmm. This, this notion that the river cut the canyon has some problems. Right. And even secular geologists who study the canyon uh, have, have come up with that. Well, one of the biggest problems with this ancestral uh, river theory, right, the, the, the idea that the, the river cut the canyon and, and over millions of years is, where's the sediment? I mean, if it, if it did that slowly and, and pushed that, that sin, you should, should have evidence for it where the river empties Empties out, right? In, into so, the Pacific, yeah. Right. And, and it, it should be, it's a huge amount of sediment, right? There's, <laughs> there, there's, it cut the canyon and then all of the, it, it, the, that, that river covers a lot of the American Southwest. You're eroding a huge area. Right. Where's all the sediment? That's but one it, of the biggest problems. But it's not there. No. That's the problem. I mean, look where it empties in the Pacific. It's just not there. It's in Eastern California. It's west of the canyon in Eastern California. And what happened was, it, it, well, we've got a couple of theories we can go through here to explain how that, that sediment was torn out of the canyon and not by the river, but by, uh, by huge amounts of water afterwards. First of all, there's the breach dam theory. And this has been popular for, for many years. It, it, it looks like something like this here. You see that Kaibab upwarp. And that was holding back. That's the upwarped area that we saw in green there before in the satellite picture. It was, hold, it was holding back lakes. And the idea is after the flood, there was an ice age, and, right. and as the ice melted, those lakes would have filled up and filled up and breached that dam, that natural dam of the Kaibab upwarp. Hopi Lake draining first, uh, carving some of the canyon, and then Canyonlands Lake. These are huge lakes. Uh, carved the canyon in, uh, in a few weeks, essentially. Right. And that, that is summer. For more detail, there's an excellent book, and a lot of the content that you're hearing today is, is in this book here, Grand Canyon Monument to Catastrophe by Dr. Steve Austin, who led the tour that, uh, that I was on. I remember reading in an article one time, they, they uh, were postulating some of the features on Mars, and they said it, was, it might have been a similar thing where there was, right. was kind of like a, you know, an area where the water might have been, and then it breached and it cut. And it, it, they actually said, used the term, uh, 
cut, cut an instant Grand Canyon instant, on Mars. On Mars, where there's no liquid water today. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got a more recent suggestion for uh, the canyon's formation. That's called the receding flood scenario. So this model is summarized in the December uh, 2010 issue of the Journal of Creation, if you're looking for more information there. And it points out some things that the breach dam theory actually have some, some difficulty uh, accounting for. Um, you can see uh, details in this model. Go to creation.com slash gc dash origin and uh, you get a more detailed uh, synopsis there. Right. Either way, the point is there are two models currently that fit within a biblical framework, which fit within biblical history, right. that help us understand how the canyon may have been formed, not by the river, and they fit with what we observe. They fit the right. facts. And evolutionists are actually admitting that you know, this, this slow river winding through there for millions of years, that's not really, they're pointing to catastrophism. Yes, right. and I guess we should clarify there a little bit. Evolutionists would generally say that yes, the river did carve the canyon, but we're talking here about the geologists that work on the canyon, that have studied the canyon. Right. As we've said already, as far back as the 60s, some of them, and they're not creationists, yes. they were saying, look, this idea that the river slowly carved the canyon over millions of years, it doesn't fit the observations, doesn't fit the facts. It has was, a lot of problems, right? That's right. So our Grand Canyon tour was led by Dr. Steve Austin. Here's a picture of Dr. Austin as he, as he was in the 90s there. Here's some other scientists were along as well. These, these are guys with PhDs. Uh, that got their PhDs at, at, at universities, just like other scientists do. There's this notion that, well, there's no real creationist yeah, yeah. believes the Bible. Um, uh, here's Dr. Andrew Snelling, and, uh, and, and he's, uh, he's another geologist. He was one of the guides on the tour as well. So he, here he is pointing to a cross-section of the rock, the strata in the canyon on his T-shirt there. You can see that was kind of the chalkboard. And look at our classroom. <laughs> there, there it is right behind it's a us. big classroom. So it's... Uh, uh, wonderful time there in the canyon. So as we are driving, as we were driving toward where we were going to put the rafts in, we drove by uh, uh, here. Here we're driving toward Lee's Ferry. There's the Vermilion Cliffs in the back, the Echo Cliff silhouetted here in the front, and we have the, here's the area again. This is where we're uh, uh, where we're going to be. And if we zoom in on that, Lee's Ferry is right up there, and here's the Vermilion Cliffs. And here's the Echo Cliffs. And as we drive by those cliffs, here we are in the, in, the, in the tour bus again. There's the cliffs on those sides there. The canyon is in the middle. And there's the Vermilion Cliffs. There's the Echo Cliffs again. As we drive past those, it was pointed out to us, where's the talus? There should be way more rockfall evidence at the bottom of these cliffs. If they've been exposed for millions of years, there should be way more rockfall at the bottom, but uh, there's nothing there. And once we, get, uh, once we got on the river, you can see pictures of us here putting on our, uh, our rain gear. And the water in the, in the river is very cold, that's why we had to wear this. We had some instruction, here you see Dr. Kurt Wise talking about this desert varnish. That's this blackish to brownish, you can see it on the rocks there. Here's a recently exposed surface, that's the color of the rock actually. Right. And then this brownish substance on there, they call it desert varnish. And that was pointed out to us, that's basically manganese oxide and, and, and clay mostly, and other, other things, that build up over a long time on rocks that are stable, that stay there for a long time. And it builds up to this shiny coating, and, and desert varnish indicates a long period of stability of those rocks, not slow and continuous erosion that we're always uh, uh, blasted with. Right, and, and also the thickness of the desert uh, varnish on rocks at the top of the cliff um, is the same at the, at the rocks near the bottom of the cliff, and that suggests that the entire cliff face has been exposed for the same amount of time, right? Right. Um, there's, there's a little evidence that, that that's 
evidence here, you know, little bits, I, I guess, from your, your trip you saw all over the place that points to evidence that those millions of years didn't happen. That, that the biblical history, a young earth, that, that's consistent with what the yeah, Bible it, said. It doesn't prove it, right? but it's consistent with it. Right? Right. It's, another, it's another little evidence. So here we are, we stopped for lunch, and uh, we, we ate, we had amazing food. Some of the other groups, the hikers and the rafters, called us the float and bloat group, because <laughs> we ate so well. The river water's cold, so all, you keep all your food in the bottom of the boat there. Uh. And then we get on the river. Uh, this, is, this is some of the rafting, some of the biggest white water in the world. Keep your eye on the, uh, the, the blue hat on the right side of the screen there. Bang, into the rapids. That's fun. <laughs> I, I mean, you all ought to try that sometime. That's, it, that's great fun. And here we get to the red wall limestone. Redwall limestone. We'll just we'll just put a chart up here showing a cross section of the canyon to give an idea of what we're talking about here. There's the redwall limestone. Now in the canyon, it's often difficult to get an idea of scale, hmm. and so we'll we'll just do this little exercise here in in your mind. See that cave ahead of there's a raft ahead of us there. How big do you think that cave is? That that's called Redwall Cave. Let's get a little closer. Now here's a shot from the back of the cave looking out toward the river. It's huge. <laughs> it's, the, the things in the canyon, it's difficult to get an idea of scale because right. very, very far away, there's no school bus there or any, nothing that we're Point familiar of reference with. So. That you're, yes. Yeah. Yeah, so we, we stopped. The reason we stopped at Redwall Cave was to, was to play in the cave and also look at some fossils. Here, Dr. Kurt Wise, who, uh, who got his PhD in paleontology under Stephen Jay Gould at Harvard, he pointed out these, these, are, these are crinoids, here are some crinoids here, uh, crinoid stock, and some bryzone fragments. Right. And here's an artist reconstruction of what a crinoid looks like. I guess one of the things about uh, a study of modern crinoids shows yeah. is that the, 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 the head disintegrates very quickly when it dies, right? And, and, and so what you're showing here is, is complete crinoid fossils found in the, in the Grand Canyon. So, um, that means they must have gotten buried very, very rapidly. Uh, here we can see a, one of the stalks of the animal, but along the Hermit uh, uh, Trail in Central Grand Canyon, also in the Redwall limestone, uh, limestone, many crinoid heads have been found buried together with broken and sorted discs from the stalks. So rapid burial by moving water is implied because the same water can both sort the discs and rapidly bury the, the crinoid heads before decomposition. Right. And, and the typical scenario for limestone is that limestone forms, and the, and, and the geologists in the canyon say, well, lime, the Redwall limestone formed at the same way, limes, at the rates that limestones form today. Well, right. how do limestones form today? They form in warm oceans like the Caribbean Ocean at a rate of one inch per thousand years. <laughs> well, the, the, we wouldn't find crinoids with, with the heads that disintegrate rapidly if it was buried that slowly. It must have been buried quickly, and again, that fits with Noah's flood. Right. Welcome back. We are rafting down the canyon and looking some of the some of the evidence there in the rocks for catastrophism, for things that we would expect going on in a global flood. Right. Uh, we had a great time on the canyon. Uh, here's what we looked like on day two. Uh, <laughs> most of us got rid of our uh, our dorky looking rain suits because we figured that uh, it's pretty it's pretty warm. It's Mojave Desert environment down at the river level. Right. The water's cold, but uh, uh, you get splashed with water, you warm up pretty quickly. We also had the chance to go on hikes. Here's a hiking group, and we hiked into areas where very few humans have ever been. Uh, we hiked into one, one particular hike. Uh, it was a, a few miles, and, and some people were exhausted after that. But we stopped by this area of, of tilted rock, rock that's been tilted almost vertically, near vertical. Right. 
Now you notice how tightly the rock layers are bent uh, in the area here, not broken. And the preferred interpretation that these rocks had not yet completely lithified, right? And turned to, to solid rock when the uh, unwarping took place. Right. Yeah, so they were laid down horizontally. I mean, the, all, all those rocks are laid down horizontally. There's right. no model that can account for anything else. And then they're then they're tipped up. Right. Well, this 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 canyon that we were hiking at, it's right here. So here's the East Kaibab monocline, nine thousand feet on one side, six thousand feet on the other side. You can see the river there, and we're exploring one of the side canyons just off of the river right. by the East Kaibab monocline, where this massive upwarp had uh, had taken place. Another thing that, uh, that, that, that the scientists did was they gathered rock samples. So we got a, gathered some rock samples. We got, uh, got some samples from the Cardenas basalt down here, uh, very low in the canyon, and some samples from lava flows, from volcanoes near the rim of the canyon that spilled the lava down to the river level. Now, which of those rock samples should be younger? The ones on top, of course. Yeah. Right? Think of the sequence that they would have been laid down. Right. And uh, uh, when the data came back, it was quite, uh, quite astonishing. Quite different, eh? So, so here's, here's the data came back. 1.07 billion years. 1.34 billion years. So that means the stuff on the top is older than the stuff on the bottom. Now, this is, these are dates from the, using the Rubidian uh, strontium method, isochron method, right? So this uh, method is supposed to get rid of some of the, you know, um, some of the problems, we'll say, with some of the other dating methods. It's, it's supposed to be a, a more accurate, reliable um, way of dating it. But in this case here, uh, the canyon got laid upside down, is basically what <laughs> if, their, their dating methods are. If we go with that dating method, and, and all, all dating methods involve making assumptions. I mean, even the majority of them that, that we'd be familiar with that point to uh, a, re a more recent creation. The majority right. of dating methods point to a more recent creation anyways. But even those involve making assumptions. Right. Y you have to. You, you have, have to because you weren't there. You can, there's no repeatable, observable uh, test. You can try to determine something that happened in the past, right? Yeah, so it's not, it's not an absolute dating method at all. Yeah. And those, th those results are actually, they form a chapter in Dr. Austin's book here, Grand Canyon Monument to Catastrophe. It's an excellent book to get if you're thinking of going to the canyon or if, you, if you'd look, like to look at a real example of where rock samples were dated and the data is not censored, it's not massaged to fit any evolutionary time frame, yeah. it's just displayed there and, and various uh, reasons are given why those dates came out the way they did. Well, I think this is really important for many Christians to, to really dig into this because I, I find a lot of people just think that, well, you know, scientists have proven this, they've proven that using these dating methods and they don't fully understand. It's almost like this authoritative declaration and right. you just go, yeah. well, the scientists have proven and, and if you don't really dig into it, you're, you're, you know, you're going to perhaps have your faith shipwrecked <laughs> because yeah. of that. Assumptions or, or, or presuppositions, we can call them that, play a major role uh, all over the creation evolution issue. I mean, evolutionists assume a certain history to be true right. and, and we as, as Christians, as Bible believers, we assume a certain history to be true. Our history happens to come from Scripture. But what's really great for us as Christians is that when we go out and examine the world around us, it fits with our preconceived notions, which come from Scripture. It fits with those. Right. It, it fits with the history that we have there. Yeah, so that's it, right. It, 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 yeah, it's really great. Now the, of course, on the other side, evolutionists find many things that don't fit with their history. And, of course, that's what we point out on this program in yes. uh, creation.com. Yep. You can go to the website, Creation Magazine, uh, things like that. Um, 
you know, wrapping the Grand Canyon, the, the DVD here would be a great one for you to pick up. That's, that's your talk. Uh, that explains in more detail. So just encourage people. Uh, get resources. Look into this. And you find that, guess what? You can trust the Bible. Here we are in our feedback section where oftentimes we'll post articles. Um, people come to talks or whatever, and, and they want to make comments on what they either read or observed or whatever. And so we've got a, a response here from an article that was written called, Is God Watching? And um, here was the response we, that they, they shared with us. Um, the person said, looking at this article, it doesn't sound like morality comes from Christianity. Only obedience and fear. I don't steal or murder people because that is wrong. Not because I might get punished for it. So, uh, and it goes on. There's other comments as well. But uh, the response from, uh, oh, who responded? Dominic. Dominic, Dominic yeah. from our UK office, one of our speakers over in the UK. He responded this way. He said, uh, in the Bible, the fear of God has a number of meanings. There is the fear of God, meaning the fear of judgment if we're bad. Uh, with this is also the hope of reward if we're good. Unfortunately, most people think that Christianity has little more to offer than this. There is, however, much more to it, he says. Mm -hmm. In Christ, the Son of God became perfect man. When he died on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sin so that we could receive forgiveness from God. Then he rose again from the dead so that we might be empowered to live a new life. Just as we became one with him in his death, we will become one with him in his resurrection. See Romans chapter 6. Our new life is his life. We can then start to know his goodness and perfect nature lived out in us. Yeah, he had a great response. He had a couple of really good points. He said, As Christ is formed within us, Galatians 4.19, a different fear of God becomes known, arising from a much more adequate God consciousness. We become aware of God's true nature and begin to glimpse his holiness, beauty, and goodness. The clearer we see God, the more unthinkable it becomes to sin against him. Just as we might fear dropping a priceless vase that we own and take great care when moving it, so we fear doing anything that might show disrespect towards God. I thought that was a, yeah, a great point. He really put that together well. Like yep. it's that kind of a fear. It's a motivating fear that you're you're careful. There, there's he uses the the analogy of a vase there. Yeah. When you walk around that vase, you don't flail your arms and kick your legs. And you and you show it respect. There's yes, there's a fear. Right. But it's a, it's a respect sort of fear. It's done out of okay. This is this is a, a priceless thing. I I don't want to damage it in any way. Yeah. Uh, he goes on a little bit later. Says the apostle John wrote, "There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love." That's from First John four, eighteen. And then he continues. According to Proverbs nine ten. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One, God, is understanding. Right. And, and so you have, again, that fear there. When we learn that God, uh, when we learn who God is, mm. it motivates us to do the right thing, to, to be wise with what He's given us. Well, it's interesting because you just said it motivates to do to do the right thing. The question becomes, how do you know what the right thing is? I mean, this person wrote in and said, listen, I don't murder or steal people because that's wrong, right? The thing is, if you don't believe in God, where is your standard for right and wrong? Yeah, there's, yeah, there's no, you know, if there's somebody's, no basis for it. For, for, for her, this person to say, uh, to say this is wrong, what that means is they're saying, look, there's a, there's a moral law, and I know it, and you know it, and 
I'm not going to do it because I know it's wrong. But moral laws come from moral lawgivers. Lawgivers, yeah. So if yeah. there's no God, who makes the, the the standard? Well, then sinful mankind does, which means whoever's personal opinion now becomes right and wrong, and you really can't explain right and wrong. Today's episode was originally formatted for broadcast TV and is available online at the links in the podcast show notes. Both are produced by Creation Ministries International, publishers of Creation Magazine. For more information for the accuracy of the Bible, visit creation.com. You can also donate to the ministry at creation.com slash donate. And thanks for listening.